What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. everyone and welcome to the most notorious podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis and happy to have you here. I'm speaking today with John Heidenry. He is a prolific author and editor. He was the editor of St. Louis Magazine, the St. Louis Literary Supplement, Penthouse Forum, and Maxim Magazine, among others. He's written a bunch of books and the one we're talking about today is called Zero to the Bone, The Playboy, The Prostitute, and The Murder of Bobby Greenlease. I appreciate your time today, sir. Sure. So how did you first become interested in this case? Well, in 1953, I was living in St. Louis, a half block up the alley of my home. At the other end of that alley was the Newstead Police Station. And one day I was walking along the street, Newstead Street, and I saw this huge crowd of uh, reporters and onlookers and wondered what was going on. I was unaware that uh, until my parents told me later that inside were the two most famous criminals probably at that moment in the entire United States. The kidnapping of a boy uh, in in Kansas City named Bobby Greenlees. And Bobby Greenlees had been the uh, son of uh, a very wealthy Cadillac dealer. Uh, He owned not only one dealership at... uh, Kansas City, but several all throughout the Southwest and supplied Cadillacs to Cadillac dealerships all over the place. He was rumored at one time to be one of the 10 wealthiest men in the country. And of course, I didn't really know too much beyond that, except that a few days later, my father, uh, who was a bookseller, took my brothers, I had two brothers and myself, and they took us out to a uh, a wooded area, and he, and he said that uh, the ransom had been paid, according to the newspapers, of $600,000, which in today's terms would be more than $10 million. And uh, the case was kind of being compared to the Lindbergh kidnapping uh, in terms of uh, coverage by the newspapers and even television, which was just beginning. So my father said, I know where half of the money was missing. Half of the ransom money was missing. 
And my father said, I have a feeling I know where that money is. Well, my father was also one of uh, maybe a couple thousand people in St. Louis who were wandering back alleys, uh, river bottoms, any place where the kidnappers were known to have been looking for this money. And my father was convinced that he knew where it was. And uh, so my brothers and I tramped up and down these creek beds. And, of course, we didn't find any money (laughs) or anything else. But that's how I became aware of it. And subsequently, I you know, moved away and had a career as a as an editor and as a writer. But um, ten years ago, I realized that this memory had stayed with me, and I wanted to know more about it. And I was astounded that there had never been a book written that definitively told the story of what happened. And now, why that was, I don't know. So. Um, I pitched the idea to uh, my agent, and he sold it to St. Martin's Press. And next thing you know, I was my wife uh, and I flew to a little town about 70 miles south of Kansas City, one of my favorite towns, by the way, to Pleasanton, which is where a man named uh, Carl Austin Hall was born. And I began there uh, checking his background and neighbors and all that sort of thing and how the local press treated it, visited his uh, grave, and went to Kansas City and then um, crossed the state to St. Louis, which was the same route that uh, Hall and his accomplice, a woman named Bonnie Hetty, uh, drove uh, to St. Louis. And uh, it was it was uh, about 10, 12 days of very intense Amazing research, reliving, you might say, the uh, every place that these two kidnappers had been, and then I wrote a book. So uh, it was it was quite an extraordinary um, kidnapping and murder. It's a horrible crime, unbelievable inhumanity, uh, the terror that this little five-year-old boy had to visit. He had everything, everything in the world. He lived in one of the best houses in the Midwest. And yet it was snatched away from him only days after he had returned from spending the entire uh, summer in a European tour with his nanny and his mother. So that's what I did. Yeah, that's quite an investigation. So I'd like to start by asking you to talk a little bit more about the Greenlees family. Who was in the immediate family? What was their routine like, specifically for father and son? Well, the father and son story is a little uh, unusual in this way. Uh, first of all, the, the Greenleys family home was in Mission Hills, an upscale, very upscale suburb of Kansas City. And uh, I'm no architectural critic, but I've uh, I've seen their house. It's uh, it's absolutely magnificent home, still to this day. And Bobby's father, Mr. Greenleys as I said, owned the Greenlease uh, Cadillac Agency and, and also was the distribution center for Cadillac agencies all throughout the Midwest and Southwest. And uh, Greenlease, the father, had been married previously and divorced. And uh, that marriage had been childless, but they had uh, adopted a son, a boy named Paul. And then later, very shortly after his divorce, uh, which, un- which was unusual back in the day because uh, the Greenlees family was very uh, devout Catholic. And a divorce was, was frowned upon, but nonetheless, he did marry a woman named Virginia, who became his wife, Virginia Greenlees. 
And they uh, had two children. The oldest was uh, a daughter also in Virginia. And then came uh, Bobby two years later. And what happened was that simultaneously with that, with the green leases uh, essentially becoming, you know, a typical upper middle class, you might say, happy family, able to do things like go to uh, Europe for an extended tour. They, they not only had mother and father and a governess, they also had their own full-time gardener, tutor, and two or three other uh, full-time employees who just worked around the house, a maid, a housekeeper. So they were very well off. And as I said earlier, just down the road from uh, Kansas City, some miles away, was this little town called Pleasanton. And that's where the the kidnapper, uh, Austin Hall, was born. And his family also had a bit of wealth. They uh, had fallen on hard times, however. His mother had left him the equivalent of, uh, it was $200,000, which in today's money, you know, several million. But he was a troublemaker and had gone in and out of uh, reform schools and so forth and ultimately was sent to a military academy where he was going to be uh, told to straighten out. And the name of that military academy in the middle of the state was Kemper Military Academy. And while at the Kemper Military Academy, Carl Hall came to know of, and possibly even knew personally, the older Greenlees boy, the adopted boy, Paul Greenlees. And that was important to him because he could identify this older boy as somebody who he just knew came from a very wealthy family. Meanwhile, Carl Hall joined the Marines, actually fought in the Pacific, earned a couple of bronze stars, but also developed a serious drinking problem. He was a by the time he was 20, he was a major alcoholic, going through a, a bottle or two, a fifth or two a day of whiskey. Uh, when he uh, got out of the Marines around 1945 or 6, his mother, who had uh, always been rather cold and distant and wished, you might say, that she had somebody else to leave the money to, <laughs> seemingly had no other choice, left her money to him. And he suddenly found himself a rather wealthy young man of about 20, 21, 22 years old. And he loved cars. He bought himself a Cadillac convertible. And he got himself another, a Buick convertible. Then he got a friend and they drove across the country. And he was rather secretive. Nobody quite knows why he drove to California, what he did. But uh, he was going through his uh, $200,000 very quickly. He had a very nice suite at a uh, top hotel in Kansas City. And at uh, some point, he met a a man to invest uh, in a crop dusting scheme. That was just one of many of his schemes. And he lost something like $18,000 or $20,000 overnight, and that thing didn't work out. He was also a gambler. He gambled a great deal of his money. And the time came when he didn't have any money. He had gone through $200,000, let's say, in uh, less than a year, certainly not much longer. So he decided to rob a taxi cab, and he robbed a taxi cab of, I think it was about $13 he got. And that didn't work out because uh, not long after, the cab driver was able to ID him, and he was arrested, and he was sent to uh, Missouri State Prison in Jefferson City. Jefferson City is the capital of Missouri. So uh, while he's in prison, Carl Hall having nothing else to do, nothing else 
nothing to drink, <laughs> began to fantasize about how am I ever going to get rich again. And, of course, he remembered this boy he had spent time with, a very short time with, uh, in the Kemper Military Academy named Paul Greenlees, the adopted son of this wealthy man. When he got out of prison, I think he served a year and a half, he uh, went to St. Joseph, Missouri, sort of famed in uh, various legends as the place where the Pony Express starting point was, and it's where Jesse James was uh, murdered by the dirty little coward. And uh, he didn't know what to do. He had a friend who was a sort of a big-hearted family lawyer who sort of uh, adopted him, loaned him a little money, you know, helped him out. And he got some sort of a job, I think, selling insurance. And he went to a bar one night, and, and of course his drinking habits had returned. And he was hanging out at this bar in St. Joseph. It was the fanciest bar at the, in the city at the time. And he saw a bar girl there, as they were called back in the day. And her name was Bonnie Brown Hetty. And Bonnie Brown Hetty uh, was a prostitute who turned tricks for $2 or so a night. But like Hall, she had once been rather wealthy herself. She had been born in northwest uh, Missouri and used to be a um, breeder of pedigree boxer dogs. And uh, she was also a horsewoman and uh, had won many... Uh, competitions and entered into rodeos and you know the photos of her show her you know with cowboy hats and breeches and looking like Roy Rogers you might say but uh, she had married a rather vicious man named Vernon Hetty her maiden name was Bonnie Brown and uh, he was a much older man and a rather brutal man who uh, forced her to have 11 abortions he didn't want children 11 abortions is an extraordinary number any woman. And that obviously had a profound uh, effect on her. And by the time that Carl Austin Hall got out of prison, Bonnie Hetty had divorced her husband and had been reduced to turning tricks at her home in St. Joseph. She would bring them home to her home and uh, she had tricked up a, a bedroom with posters and, you know, there was, there was various drinks were available and that's sort of thing. And even uh, before she uh, brought uh, Austin Hall home with her, there had been a number of uh, problems. There had been, the police had been called one time. Uh, Neighbors had reported a a shooting and a man, she had shot a man in his hand with a 25 caliber pistol because he was attempting to extinguish a cigarette on her breast. So it's that kind of rather sordid circumstances that she was living in. And she was also, like all, a terrible uh, alcoholic. Well, anyway, at this bar in uh, St. Joseph, Hall and Hetty met up, and and Hall immediately recognized what he needed uh, in this plan that he had conceived in his uh, prison cell. Originally, he was going to kidnap Virginia Greenlease, the, the girl, and not little uh, Bobby Greenlees, who was two years younger. And uh, he would talk about it, how he was going to kidnap uh, this kid, and they were going to ask for this amount of money and that, and they were going to move to, he was, this is what he was telling to Bonnie Hetty, that we'll move to La Jolla in California, we're going to get ourselves a great big 
home uh, looking out over the uh, Pacific, and I'm going to bet on the horses, and we're going to have a, a great, great life. And, of course, uh, Bonnie Hetty fell madly in love with this guy. And then finally he persuaded her to kind of go along with it, and she never really believed that he was serious, that this was just some fantasy of his, and as long as he kept buying her drinks and you know she was, he had moved in with her and all that, she never really thought it was going to happen. She did not have that kind of cold brutality and, and real uh, sense of evil that I think uh, uh, lurked in his heart. What was his motive? Was his goal the kidnapping, or, or was it to murder a member of the Greenlease family? His motive was to get money, and he assured her that once they kidnapped her, or well, actually it was going to be the girl, that once the kidnapping was effected and that they had so much money that, of course, they would give the boy away, they would give their victim away, and it was all money. Murder had never entered into anything. Then uh, what he did is he, he took, uh, he didn't have a car, but he borrowed her car, Bonnie's car, and he, he decided he was going to uh, scout out the family. And so he followed Virginia, the mothers, uh, Virginia Greenleaf's um, one day when they drove to Crown Plaza, the big fancy um, shopping area in downtown Kansas City. And Virginia Greenleaf was there with her daughter, Virginia. And he saw them both get out and he thought maybe this is a, or the opportunity he'd been waiting for. And he had, for momentarily, he thought I would, he would just grab the girl and, you know, throw her into the trunk and whisk her away. But then he realized that she was rather big and could fight back, and that would that would be a problem. He himself was only about 5'9", and was not exactly a big, muscular guy. So that's when he changed his mind and said, no, I'm going to have to kidnap the uh, the boy. Meanwhile, he had read that if if a body is put in a grave and you pour lime on it, It'll basically disintegrate. Uh, there will be nothing left for the uh, police to find that could implicate him in any way in the event uh, circumstances did work out for him. And so he he bought some. He bought a fifty-pound bag of lime and he bought a shovel and this and that. You know, and so he got preparations. And then Bonnie Hetty, behind her home in St. Joseph, Missouri, had a little uh, garden. So he thought, well, this is the perfect place. I'm going to dig a grave in here. Uh, and uh, then we'll put these uh, tulips over it, and that's what he did. He he pre-dug a grave, and, uh, of course, all this time, Bonnie Hetty was so drunk that she didn't quite understand what was going on or had slowly given in to his pressure that we have to kill him because if you want the money, he's going to recognize who we are. He can identify us. This is the only way for this to be a surefire way to do it. So being in love with him, basically spending hours of every day completely passed out, she went along with him. And he had, as I said, uh, gone several times following the older Mr. Greenleys, who every morning, Monday through Friday, would drop off his son in his Cadillac at a rather exclusive school in Kansas City called the Notre Dame de Sion Academy. It was a girls' academy uh, that was taught by nuns of the Congregation of Notre Dame in France. And part of the curriculum was that students were actually taught not only French, but in French by French nuns. And that's kind of an important circumstance, that 
the housekeeper nuns, some of the nuns were teachers and some of the nuns were housekeepers. And the housekeeping nuns were not really all that fluent in English. On the day of the kidnapping, Carl instructed Bonnie Hetty, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, uh, they drove to a cat's drugstore in Kansas City and she caught a, a, a cab and she took it to the school. And he waited in the parking lot of this drugstore. So when the cab arrived at uh, the Notre Dame de Sion school, Bonnie Hetty went up the steps and identified herself as the sister of Virginia Greenlease and that Virginia had taken violently ill and uh, was in a hospital and had asked to see little Bobby. And the door was answered by a French-speaking nun named Sister Morand, M-O-R-A-N-D, Sister Morand, who, of course, got all flustered, believed every word that Bonnie Hetty told her. There was never a moment's doubt, and went up to uh, fetch Bobby up on the second floor, where I believe he was taking a course in Latin. So she conferred with the Latin teacher, a man, and they uh, decided, okay, they would uh, allow Bobby to be taken away. Meanwhile, the nun had said, why don't you go into our chapel and say a prayer for your sister? And Bonnie Hetty said, well, I don't know how to pray. I'm not a Catholic, which, of course, should have immediately sent off an alarm because uh, Virginia Greenlees uh, was known to be Catholic. The boy was being sent to a Catholic school, and Bonnie Hetty says, I'm not a Catholic, and I don't know how to pray. Nonetheless, he went into the chapel, sat there for a minute or two, and then came out. The nun presented Bobby, who had been who had asked whether he could take a Jerusalem medal with, with him because uh, it was given for an award, that he had won an academic award of some sort. And so off they went into the waiting cab, and Bobby Greenlease never once questioned who this woman was or anything. The uh, the nun had told him that um, you know your your aunt is going to take you, and he's just a very trusting boy. You know he's quite young, and he just put his hand in hers, and off they went. They got into the cab. Cab drove to Cat's parking lot, where Hall was waiting for them. We will be right back. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. I think you mentioned in your book something about promises of ice cream, right? Oh, yes, you're right. You know, I think that that um, Bonnie had said we we're going to get you some ice cream and things of that sort. I really can't remember the details on that one, frankly. But they got into the cab, and then they started driving around, and Hall, had, he had done certain precautions like changing his license plate. He had changed the license plate on Bonnie's car. But what exactly he was going to do once the boy was in the car, he had not quite thought that out. So they drove around, and they saw this field, and, you know, a couple of miles outside the city. And he thought to himself, well, this is as good as any. And at that point, he knew that uh, he was going to kill the boy, and Bonnie knew it too. And they had brought Bonnie's pedigree boxer, so Bonnie didn't want to be around anywhere. And so she got the dog and uh, went wandering off a couple hundred yards away. And at that point, little Bobby had to wonder what was going on. He's sitting there in the front seat, and meanwhile, Paul gets out, uh, opens the trunk of the station wagon, a Plymouth station wagon, and lays down this tarp where he intends to lay the body after he kills Bobby. And then he gets in on the driver's, uh, on the passenger side of the, of the front seat, and he has brought with him as a murder weapon a, a length of rope that's not even 12 inches long. And he was going to strangle Bobby. And when he tried, Obviously, Bobby fought back, and rather strongly, and uh, escaped the attempts by Hall to, to strangle him. And in desperation, Hall, Hall threw him down onto the uh, foot area in front of the seat and cracked him in the mouth with the 38 caliber revolver he carried with him, breaking several of his teeth. And then he, put, and then he fired at Bobby, and missed, and the bullet went right through uh, the floorboard. And as Bobby continued to fight uh, and scream and yell, Hall shot again, and the bullet went right through his skull, 
splattering him, uh, Hall himself, and, and the car with all sorts of blood and skull fragments. It was quite a mess. Meanwhile, Hetty is hearing all this, and the dog uh, is getting all excited and barking. So finally she comes back to see what's happened, and she starts screaming at Hall, why did you do this? You told me you're going to strangle him, and there wouldn't be any of this noise. And uh, Hall, by this time, he was drenched in blood. And he said, well, the, this kid uh, uh, just fought back. There was nothing else I can do. So they put the boy's body into this tarp, put it in the back seat, calmed the dog down as best they could. And they drove back to St. Joseph, Missouri, where Hetty's home was, and laid uh, the boy into the pre-dug grave and poured lime over it and then dirt and then uh, tried to clean up the car as best they could. And, of course, Hall had to uh, get all new clothes and later took them to a dry cleaner to be cleaned his suit. He had, he had worn a good, his only good blue suit for the occasion. And uh, meanwhile, one of the other nuns at the academy had been told that Bobby had been taken out by his uh, aunt, and uh, so she decided to call the Greenleys home. She was the assistant principal and spoke English. Virginia Greenleys herself, the mother, answered and said hello. And, and the nun, her name was Marantha. Sister Marantha said, how are you feeling? And Virginia Greenlee said, well, I'm fine. Why do you ask? And, of course, you can imagine the horror that uh, fell on both of those women when they realized that this woman pretending to be a sister had vanished with the boy. So immediately, uh, Mr. Greenlease was notified. Being a man uh, of some reputation and wealth, he, he had all kinds of contacts with the mayor, the chief of police. They were immediately contacted. So they didn't quite know what to, what to do. Uh, some friends of uh, Mr. Greenlease immediately rushed to the home in Mission Hills. And there was only a very small notice in the Kansas City Star of, of this kidnapping, uh, but the next day, of course, it was front-page news. It soon became front-page news, basically every major newspaper in the country, New York Times, uh, name any city, that's where it was. And then what uh, ensued was a, a series of such incompetence on the part of the uh, kidnappers, of, of Hall primarily, that uh, it almost boggles the mind and if you want me to go into that in detail, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, if you could. What's so incredible is that despite Hall's incompetency, he and his girlfriend actually managed to get the ransom money. <laughs> yeah, through no... Um, I mean, it's, it's a miracle that, that they did get the money. Anyway, so after, uh, after he had been buried, uh, there's two things we can talk about. Uh, you tell me, I can either talk about what um, Hetty and Hall are doing or what the family and police are doing. But really, they're kind of intertwined, aren't they? Yeah, you can tell them any way you'd like, and feel free to intertwine them. I'll, I'll, I'll do them both. So, needless to say, that day after he had been buried, murdered and buried in, his backyard, in the backyard of Hetty's um, house in St. Joseph, they had clearly, uh, the two kidnappers had clearly passed into much deeper territory and got completely wasted that day. 
and sort of remained completely wasted for the next uh, couple of weeks until they were caught. And what happened was then Carl Hall was almost too drunk to uh, figure out how to get this money or what to do, but he did make a phone call. Now, several of the business associates of Mr. Greenlee's, uh, you know, businessmen just like himself, rather well-off men, used to dealing at very high levels of banking and all that sort of thing, handled most of the negotiations because both Mr. and Mrs. Greenlee's were obviously too distraught to do it themselves. One of the men's names was Mr. Letterman. And meanwhile, uh, Carl Hall eventually contacted them. He, He made a phone call. He said, I have the boy, Bobby Greenlee's. Meanwhile, as the news filtered out, uh, there were a number of other people who pretended to be the kidnappers, believe it or not, since they knew that this was a very wealthy mark. And uh, a few of those people were apprehended, in fact, and served some minor jail time. So Letterman and these other friends of, of the Green Leases had to devise a kind of routine with the real kidnappers so that they know this was a, a genuine uh, article you know, identify yourself as this or that and so forth and so forth. So when the phone call came that was the authentic one, Carl Hall told them he wanted $600,000, which is an astounding amount of money. He had come to that. uh, He originally wanted uh, to have a million dollars, but he had, while lying in uh, his jail cell back in uh, the day when he was at the Missouri Penitentiary, he had figured out that that would be too heavy. He had read an article somewhere about how much money weighed, what a hundred pounds would weigh, a thousand pounds, and so forth, and how much uh, that would translate into an actual currency. So he figured out that if I have X number of twenty-dollar bills and ten-dollar bills, it'll be just the right weight. Six hundred thousand dollars would weigh eighty-five pounds. So that's why he came up with that amount. And that he would be able to carry that amount, whereas a million dollars would be too heavy. So he called and he said, I want uh, this amount of money and this amount and these currencies and so forth. And the Greenlee's family said, we can do that. But uh, then Hall said, but I want it from all 12 uh, federal reserves around the country, not just the one here in Missouri. Because he knew that they were going to... Uh, that all the serial numbers on the currency would be written down, and he wanted as many serial, basically as many uh, serial numbers as could possibly be gotten from all 12 reserves. So that was also agreed upon. And then the family wanted proof that he had Bobby and that Bobby was alive and they wanted to speak to Bobby. And the only proof that Hall had was the Jerusalem medal that Bobby had asked to take with him uh, when Bonnie Hetty had uh, come for him at the school. So Hall agreed to send that, which he did, as proof that he had it. But he could not provide proof that he was alive, since, of course, he was dead. So instead, what he kept on saying over and over to the family and so forth, is he's a hellcat, that's the word he used. He's a real hellcat. He uh, won't speak. He, uh, all he does is demand his mother being returned to his mother and father and so forth. By that time already, the Greenlee's family had begun to realize that he was most likely dead. Nonetheless, they had no alternative, really, 
uh, except to do whatever uh, the kidnappers demanded. Losing $600,000 was nowhere near as important to them as getting their boy back, obviously. So the FBI was brought in. Huge crowds of newspaper reporters began to assemble outside the home of the Greenleys Mansion in Mission Hills. John Cameron Swayze and uh, Edward R. Murrow and other people of that time were there with their television crews. Back in those days, in 1954, the evening news was only 15 minutes long, but even then, this was the lead report. And during this period, the real difficulty, so far as Carl Austin Hall saw it, was how could he obtain the $600,000 without being, with, with the whole nation knowing what's going on? The whole country was watching. So he said, uh, finally, I want that money put into a certain kind of a box, a duffel bag. And then he, then what ensued were uh, several garbled, almost madcap, you might even say almost funny, disastrous attempts to deliver the money. It was doing things like going to uh, a tree and looking under a rock, and under the rock would be another note. And then you'd have to read that note and go somewhere else and uh, look under the mailbox and put it on the sill of a church. And almost too many series of uh, attempts to retrieve this money uh, to follow. It, it, came, it became extremely exasperating to the Greenlees family, who all this while kept demanding to have some evidence that their boy was alive. Finally, it came to a point where uh, Letterman and some of the other people uh, representing the Greenleaf family got very annoyed with it and were started making fun of uh, Hall's demand, saying, look, I'm tired of all this having to climb a tree and look in a bird's nest and all this ridiculous directions you're giving me. Let's talk man to man. I want to give you the money. Tell me where he is. Kind of chewed him out. So Hall, in his drunken way, said, okay, I'm going to give you the final directions, and you have to go to this one hotel, and uh, I will call you at a certain time, and I will tell you what to do. No more notes. And uh, Letterman said, okay, what's the name of the hotel? And, and he was so drunk, Hall was so drunk, he couldn't even remember the name of the hotel where he told the um, uh, family representative uh, where he would find a little phone booth. So he said, I think it ends in Shire. So they finally figured I must be the Berkshire Hotel. So I went to the Berkshire Hotel, and at the promised time, the phone rang, and Hall, slurring his words rather badly, said, go do this and that, and you have to drive this way, and you go down that way, and uh, you toss it over uh, this bridge and uh, overpass, and um, he would be waiting downstairs, of course, and he would set off in another direction. So they agreed to that. Uh, and he also said, 48 hours after uh, I get the money, you will receive information on where to pick up Bobby in another small town in Kansas. So they agreed to that. And so two of the family representatives had the money and set off late at night down this road and down that road. And the directions were so complicated that finally they had to pull over and they saw this young teenage couple sitting there and asked them, do you have any idea what this road means and that road. And the, and the boy who was in the car with his girlfriend said, sure, follow me. So they followed this kid who knew that area and brought them to the point where they were to make the delivery of the money. They tossed the uh, duffel bag over. 
thanked them, and you know, they went back home, and the boy, of course, drove off. And when Hall, with Hetty sitting beside him, absolutely passed out, saw them leave, he retrieved the money and sped off toward St. Joseph to Hetty's home. Was there any attempt by the police to... No. They agreed to meet the demands of the uh, green leases, not to mess with anything. Then the green leases, uh, were, went, you know, they, they were waiting at home. Meanwhile, uh, Hetty and uh, Hall were originally going to go back to her home and just wait it out. But Hall was paranoid, and he thought for sure that somehow when he went to get the money, the two representatives from the Greenleaf family, and this is in the middle of the night, of course, had somehow, by some miracle, seen his license plate. And so he refused to go home. He, he told Bonnie, we're, we're changing uh, the plan. We're not going to go to your house. We're going to go to St. Louis, which was about 250 miles away across the state. I mean, this is at midnight. So Bonnie Hetty, what you know, what did she care? She, as long as she had her, she, she was so drunk that as long as she had a drink going, that, that was enough for her. So they got on the highway with a duffel bag in the trunk, $600,000, and they drove uh, across about the 250 miles or so to St. Louis, arriving there early in the morning. And of course, the first thing they do is uh, they need a drink. And uh, in, the, in the course of the next couple of hours, they go to five or six different bars that were just beginning to open up. Meanwhile, uh, Hetty uh, Hall also decides that he needs some, something else to uh, put all this money in. So he leaves uh, Hetty in the car and he goes and gets a couple of big locker trunks at a, a downtown Army-Navy store that had just opened up for business. And he got those. And then uh, they drove to an area in uh, South St. Louis, and they're going to start transferring the money in an alleyway from the duffel bag into these two lockers. Now, why they wanted to do that uh, is a mystery. And I mean, it was perfectly fine where it was, but I guess he just thought it was more professional to put it into metal lockers because he was he had come up with this crazy idea that he would henceforth uh, identify himself as a man named Steve Strand and that he uh, would identify himself further as a pharmaceutical salesman. And Steve Strand would uh, need uh, something more than a duffel bag to show his wares. So then what ensued is they went to five or six different places to find a permanent place for them to live. So Hall got into a cab and he said, I need to find a place where I can go hang out for about a month. I'm a salesman, and uh, do you have a good place? I don't want to go to a hotel. He, he knew that police would be looking at hotels, things like that. So he wanted a place that was a rooming house. So the cab driver took him to a place uh, on a street in St. Louis called Arsenal Street, which was right across the street from a very popular, well-landscaped hotel called Tower Grove Park. What's interesting about that is that by coincidence, who should be living on the other side of this park but a man named Joe Costello. Now, Joe Costello was a uh, small-time but very uh, important mobster in St. Louis, and he owned a, a cab company called Ace Cabs. And the man who had dropped them off at that rooming house on Arsenal Street was an Ace Cab driver. So anyway, Hall and Hetty go into this place. It's a little tiny little room uh, in the 4500 block of Arsenal. And I mention that because by coincidence, I used to, for a year, live a block away. 
Hetty had wanted to go to the Chase Hotel, which is the luxury hotel at the time in St. Louis. And Hall had refused because he said, that's the first place the police will look. We're going to stay in this rooming house. So they go in there and Hetty is disgusted. And she said, this place is a dump. I don't want to stay here. And so they get into an argument and Hall punches her, knocks her out. So she's on on the bed, passed out and knocked out. So after about 10, 15 minutes of just lying uh, on the bed next to his passed out girlfriend, Hall decides, I got to get out of here. So he takes $2,500 and he, well, he puts it under the pillow for um, Hetty and he de- decides he needs to leave and get a drink. So then what ensues is he goes to about five or six different taverns, one after the other, drinking his way through the afternoon. And meanwhile, he decides he needs to buy himself a car. And he happens to be in a neighborhood where there's a lot of used car dealerships. So he goes into one place and he sees this Nash, like a 1950 Nash. And he asks the salesman, how much is that Nash? And the salesman says it's $350. So they start negotiating, and the salesman and his boss realize that this, this guy who wants to buy the Nash is so drunk he doesn't know what he's doing. So they change the, they up the price to $450. What does Carl Hall, he doesn't give a damn. He gives them $450, and he takes the, the Nash and uh, parks it in front of their house. Uh, meanwhile, I didn't mention uh, all the money was still back with Hetty at this rooming house. But then um, Hall decides he's got to get out of here. His girlfriend's a drunk, and he's come up with a plan. He is convinced that the police are closing in on him, and he's got to find a way to throw them off track. So he's come up with this crazy idea that uh, if he could just get somebody to post a letter in Los Angeles that would throw the police off track by, by indicating that he was out in Los Angeles, that would solve all of his problems. So that became his focus, to find some woman, Bonnie Hetty herself not being reliable, any more reliable than he, of course, but he could not send her to L.A. So he gets this idea, I'll get somebody to go out to L.A. and post this letter for me. And he wanted the letter posted to a lawyer he knew in St. Joseph who had helped him get his job after he got out of prison. So that being his next order of business, he uh, gets a cab, and he asked to be taken to a, a nice hotel. He wants to know, he said, I, I need a girl, by which he meant prostitute. And I want to go to a really nice hotel. So what do you suggest? Well, the cab driver didn't want to cooperate, but he knew another cab driver who worked for Ace Cab. He said, I'll, I'll take care of you, buddy. So the, the cab driver drove him to another cab driver. And this other cab driver was named John Hager. And John Hager was a small-time hood. By coincidence had been in the very same prison in Jefferson City, the Missouri State Prison, just shortly before Hall himself got there. So they were not there simultaneously, but almost. And Hager is the key here to everything. Back after a few brief messages. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburg's notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned for the final time. So what happened was that Hall said, I want to go to this nice hotel and I want to get a woman, blah, blah, blah. And Hager knew he had some kind of a mark. He didn't know what. And he said, what do you got in those uh, cases there? And, and Hall said, oh, I'm a pharmaceutical salesman. Now, everybody in the whole country, as I said before, knew about this case that $600,000 was missing. This guy was in Missouri. Most likely he was no longer in St. Joseph, but you never know. Could have gone, you know, north to Nebraska or south to Oklahoma. He was somewhere in that neck of the woods. So he said, I know the place. There's this place right on uh, Route 66 called the Coral Court. Now, the Coral Court was one of the most beautiful, architecturally speaking, motels in the United States at the time. I have passed by it many, many times. I've never actually been inside it. It's now demolished to make way for a housing project. But it was really something very fancy. And what it offered was complete privacy. If you were going to go in and have a little rendezvous with a girlfriend or a secretary, this was the place because it allowed you to park your car in a garage that could not be seen from outside. And it was rather fancy as uh, those kind of motels went. So that's where they went. 
Meanwhile, of course, Hetty is still passed out on Arsenal Street in that rooming house. Hager, the cab driver, uh, said, I also know uh, just the one for you. He was a small-time pimp himself, and he knew a woman named Sandra O'Day. Sandra O'Day was 22 years old, a blonde, who had a seven-year-old child, by the way, which meant she probably got pregnant when she was about 13 or 14. So uh, he drove by, and, and, and Hager was also the boyfriend of O'Day's mother, to make this even more sordid. So Hager, the cab driver, said, I got just the girl for you. He picked up Sandra O'Day, the daughter of his girlfriend, and they drove to Coral Court Motel. And O'Day thought, you know, it was just another trick. They went into the room, and O'Day wanted to get down to business. But first of all, Hall had not slept in 48 straight hours, and he had been drinking, I'm guessing, three or four bottles of scotch during that period, at least. And the last thing he wanted was any kind of sex with this woman. He couldn't even, he would not have been able to manage it, as he told her. He said, I don't want sex. I can't handle it. What I want you to do is go to California. And O'Day says, you want me to go to California? And so Hall is saying, I'll pay you well. All you got to do is go there, drop a letter to a friend of mine in Kansas City. Well, obviously, old Sandra O'Day is suspicious, too. And she's also heard about this kidnapping. And at that point, there are certain things happening that the record doesn't quite confirm one way or the other. But my guess, and that of the police subsequently, and various other reporters and so forth, was that the cab driver knew what was up almost immediately. And he said, look, I've got this guy. He wants this woman to go to California to mail a letter to his friend in Kansas City. He's got this huge trunk. He claims he's a pharmaceutical salesman. He doesn't know anything about pharmaceutics. And by the way, we'd been talking about the time I had spent in prison uh, in Jefferson City. And this guy knows too much about prison life. He's, you know, we use the same lingo. There's no way this guy is not the kidnapper. So Hager is telling this to Joe Costello. And Joe Costello calls up a friend of his on the St. Louis Police Department, a detective named Lewis Shoulders. Shoulders was a corrupt cop. He had once been a cab driver, believe it or not, with Hager. And uh, he was just as corrupt as they got. The whole St. Louis Police Department back then was riddled with corruption. So while Hager and Hall and Sandra O'Day, the prostitute, are over to Coral Courts, Lewis Shoulders drives over to Arsenal Street because he had found out I, I don't know if I mentioned that, but Hager had asked a fellow cab driver to give an envelope to Bonnie Hetty at the rooming house on Arsenal Street saying that I'm going to be gone for a while. See you soon. So at some point, Bonnie Hetty had awakened from her stupor, saw that Hall had gone, that she had $2,500, figured, well, okay, he'll be back. This is for me to hold the money for the time being, and went out to get uh, some cigarettes and a quart of milk and some newspapers. While she went around the corner to do this, Shoulders, the cop, it is surmised, although there's no proof and he never admitted it, probably went into the rooming house, looked around, saw there was no money there, and and left. So meanwhile, back at the motel, Sandra O'Day, the prostitute, is getting antsier and antsier because she can't figure out what's this guy doing. And what's with that big uh, couple of lockers that he won't let anybody near? 
Well, eventually he said, I'm going to give you X amount of money, he's throwing money around rather freely at this point. He, he's giving a wad of cash to $2,000 to Hager, the cab driver, to go out and buy some whiskey and, and to go out and buy him a whole new wardrobe, you know, shoes, uh, a whole suit, ties, shirts, everything. And, and he was also being uh, a good guy, like, hey, here's a hundred bucks for yourself. Go uh, take your wife out for uh, dinner kind of a thing. And so Sandra Day is no fool either. She's wondering what's going on. So she she sort of agrees, okay, I'll go along. And she's seeing, by the way, when, when he has to covertly open the lid of his trunk, she's seeing that all this money inside of there. Naturally, she knows what's going on. But she thinks the money must be somewhere else, that this is just the tip of the iceberg. So they decide, the three of them, that they were going to go out to a fancy restaurant that night. But Hall said, I, I really need to take a nap. So he does. Meanwhile, Hager, the cab driver, contacts Costello, and they lay a trap. What they decide is that Costello calls his friend Shoulders, of course, and they confer. And meanwhile, uh, after he takes his nap, uh, Hall wakes up, hasn't been sleeping too long, and he decides he doesn't like this motel. It's a dump. He wants to go to a better place now that he has a, a good suit. So... They go to back into the city, into a very nice neighborhood in St. Louis called the Central West End. They go to a, a place that has luxury apartments called the Town Hall. So they go to the Town Hall, but they get rid of Sandra O'Day. They send her off on a little mission. So she's off on her little errand somewhere. Hager and Hall resettle themselves into this deluxe apartment. And Hall says, I'm just going to rest for a little bit. They will call me in a couple of hours and, and knock three times. That'll be our signal that I know it's you. So the cab driver says, sure, I got that. So a half hour later, the cab driver calls him on the phone and said, you, you still there? And all said, yeah, I'm taking a nap. Uh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. So then that's when Hager, the cab driver, knows that's time to strike. So he contacts the crooked detective, Shoulders, and his boss, the mobster, Joe Costello. They knock on the door. Hall opens. The two of them burst in. Hall immediately wonders, who, who the hell are you? What's up? Shoulder says, shut up, sit down. I'm a detective. So, obviously, Hall thinks, in his words, the jig is up. But then they're um, more interested in what's in his case than in him. And Shoulder says, what's in those cases? And Hall says, oh, I'm a pharmaceutical salesman. Those are my supplies. So Shoulders acts like he believes him. He said, but we got to take you down for questioning to the police station. And Hall says, but why? I didn't do anything. I'm just a police, uh, I'm just a pharmaceutical salesman. And Shoulders says, I'm going to take you with me. Don't don't give me any gruff. Uh, he, you know, he was being very tough on him. So they handcuff him and they lead him down the hallway. And Shoulders has brought with him a, a young policeman whom he hardly knew whom uh, he had just grabbed uh, on his way out. His normal partner was not uh, on duty that day, so he just saw this, this young policeman, 25 years old, named Dolan. So Patrolman Dolan and Detective Shoulders march Hall down the hallway to a waiting car. Out of the corner of his eye, Hall glimpses a third figure who is never identified in any of the newspaper or other reportage on this case. Almost certainly that was Joseph Costello observing everything. Poor patrolman Dolan didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen or what he was getting into. He also becomes a great, a, a considerable victim of this business.
So they take him down to the Newstead Police Station, which was a half a block from where I lived at the time. Of course, I was oblivious to all this. It's just a parenthetical observation. But that's how I got interested in this whole story. And they throw him into a prison, into a jail cell. It's a holding cell. So meanwhile, uh, Hall, who had also taken not just quite a bit of whiskey, but also morphine. He was a morphine addict from time to time. He had taken a, a considerable amount of morphine. It was beginning to wear off. And he said, well, maybe I can still get out of this. And so he, he thought, well, the best way to do it is to bribe my way out. So he tried to bribe his way out with the policeman on duty and this man and that man. Meanwhile, Shoulders had gone back to the hotel, had taken the uh, two trunks of money and uh, returned uh, with them to the police station. He was seen with two trunks going in, but uh, apparently, but there's no absolute proof, but it seems to be the only other way. He had then, through a window, lowered one of the trunks out the back window to Costello. The reason he had to do that is because Dolan, being a square shooter, would have thought something was up if the arresting officer had only managed to bring in one trunk and not both trunks into the police station. So anyway, we now have a situation where Patrolman Dolan and Shoulders have brought Hall into the holding station on Newstead. Hetty is back in her rooming house of a room, and the mobster, Joe Costello, who owns Ace Cavs, is waiting in the alley of the police station to receive a suitcase containing approximately $300,000 being lowered to him by this corrupt detective. So in a way that Patrolman Dolan would not see it. Then, uh, under a constant grilling over the next few hours by the chief of police and many others, finally Hall breaks down and admits that he is the kidnapper. He tells everything. And also, of course, uh, Hetty is arrested and brought to the cell. And then you might say that this whole story is in three acts. The first act took place in Kansas City with the uh, kidnapping and the murder of Bobby Greenleys. The second act is when the kidnappers flee to St. Louis and go through this drunken uh, series of um, uh, what to do with the money and all that sort of thing and, and are apprehended. Then the third act is what happens after the arrest, and that is done under public scrutiny, of course, of the press. Hetty and Hall immediately admit their guilt and repent as best as they are capable of. They are tried in court and both sentenced to death. It was a rather quick trial. But the mystery is that missing $300,000 and the role of Detective Shoulders and Joe Costello, the uh, second-tier mobster. And there are a lot of theories on where that money went. There are indeed a great many uh, theories, although many of them are kind of crackpot. What happened then is that, uh, well, a lot of people thought that the money was hidden in the wall of the Coral Court. That was once and for all disproved when, of course, the Coral Court was demolished. But try to think, where are you going to, first of all, if you're a drunk and can hardly stand up straight, how are you going to be able to put two enormous suitcases full of money into a wall, several walls, and cover it all up and then repaint it all in a matter of, you know, a day, uh, that was completely uh, ridiculous. 
And uh, what I omitted in uh, my earlier narrative is that Hall did find time to drive along a creek bed along the Merrimack River, which runs through South St. Louis, not far from the Coral Court, thinking maybe there ought to be some place where he could hide it, but that didn't turn out to be um, a good expedition. He returned with the money in a splattered car, but that's about it. The money was never recovered. To this day, the money has never been recovered. Hetty and Hall then uh, were sentenced to death. They uh, went to uh, the Missouri State Penitentiary, where, of course, the whole thing had been hatched, and where they were put to death in a gas chamber. They decided not to appeal, and uh, they wanted to get it over. I would say that what happened was, as, as they regained their sobriety, that Hetty, in particular, came to deeply regret her actions. And yet I wouldn't say 100% that what influenced her more than anything was her love for uh, Hall. And Hall professed to have completely repented, but I don't know that I would, I don't think he had the character, in my judgment, to reach that level of self-awareness and guilt. He said he did. He wrote letters, she wrote letters to uh, the family apologizing. They came under the influence of an Episcopal priest who counseled both of them and who was uh, a witness at the execution. But, uh, you know, it was a rather bleak, sad ending. Uh, They were not popular with the other prisoners. Of course, they were kept separate from them on on death row. But when they were led across the prison yard to the gas chamber, they were hooted and hollered uh, at by the other prisoners who despised them. So they were actually in the gas chamber together. They were. The last words that, you know, when you when you are in a gas chamber, uh, there's a window that the witnesses can look at to verify that they are and to see that they are executed. And the last words that Bonnie Hall said to Carl, as best as uh, those reading her lips could determine, was, I love you, Carl. And his last words were, I love you, too. And then he in particular continued to talk or mumble as the clouds of uh, gas began to fill the room. And some people thought he might have been praying, which is which is possible. He had been given several uh, religious books to read by a Trappist monk. And uh, anyway, they were um, after they were killed, various funeral uh, services uh, arrived uh, in their hearses, one to take Hall back to Pleasanton, Kansas, to be buried in the family plot, and uh, Hetty to be taken back to her uh, family plot up in the northwestern corner of Missouri, and uh, she was buried there. Mr. Greenlease died of a broken heart, you might say. Uh, The person who took over counseling Virginia Greenlease, the mother, was a Jesuit priest at Rockhurst, which is a well-known university there, high school and university, and uh, to whom Virginia Greenlease uh, ultimately left uh, more than a million dollars to. She she really gave a lot of money to that school. Virginia Greenlease became an alcoholic, probably a drug user, the older sister of Bobby, died a completely ruined person in her mid-40s. And so did Paul Greenlease, Bobby's adopted older brother. He became um, another tragic figure who just could not quite recover from that tragedy. The one who did survive the best, you might say, was the mother. And it was basically through her, she, her, her Catholic faith, 
uh, I think is what she mostly relied on. She became quite super devout, you might say. And then at some point, years later, uh, you know, she died and their great ex- uh, collection of antiques and paintings were all auctioned off and that was it. But now the mystery of what, what happened to that money remained the lingering mystery of the Greenlease case. And reporters for both the Kansas City and St. Louis newspapers were trying to figure out what happened to it. And almost certainly here's what happened. What happened is that with that money that Shoulders had, he took it to the home of his boss, the owner of the cab company, who, as I said, lived right across Park, Tower Grove Park, from the boarding house where Bonnie had passed out. And at some point, while uh, Hall and Hetty were being interrogated, Shoulders told his partner, Dolan, what was happening. He said, this is the deal. Now, I want you to go with me. We're going to go take a look at all that money. So they went to the mobster's house, and they met with him. And Shoulders said, you can have X amount of dollars. Keep your mouth shut. And I get X amount, and then the rest goes to uh, this guy, Costello. And Patrolman Dolan said, no, I can't do that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to rat on you. And the reason he said I'm not going to tell what I know is that Costello and the corrupt detective said, if you do go to the police and try to incriminate us, you're dead and your and your family is dead. You've got a wife and children, they're dead. So Patrolman Dolan said, I won't say a thing, but I'm not touching that money. Can I ask you how you know that this conversation happened? I'll tell you, but I'll, I'll tell you sequentially. So what happened was that eventually everybody realized that Lieutenant Shoulders was a crook. He was sent to prison for uh, either two or three years, I forget, for perjury. That was the rap. Uh, meanwhile, Costello, almost certainly what he did with the money is that he gave it to a woman who ran a brothel not too far away from where he uh, lived, who had connections with a Chicago mobster named John Vitale. And Vitale either washed the money through uh, some carnivals that were playing in Chicago or sent it off to, in another theory, sent it down to Havana to be uh, sent through um, those currency mills. Meanwhile, Patrolman Dolan was also sentenced to two years in prison for refusing to testify because he did not want his um, family to be harmed. And he would not testify about it until after both Costello and Shoulders died. When they both were dead, he agreed to talk, and he told the FBI what you just asked about. He told the story that being summoned to um, Costello's house and being offered a a slice of pie and refusing it. So that's that's how that came out. To, to this day, nobody knows where that money is. Well, well, thank you for telling the story. Where can people learn more about you and your books? Well, uh, that I don't know. Um, listen to your podcast for one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my uh, I think my book is uh, might be available still in paperback. I might mention that Janet Maslin uh, named it one of the 10 best books of the year in the New York Times when it was published. The full name of the book is Zero at the Bone, and the subtitle is The Playboy, The Prostitute, 
and the murder of Bobby Greenleys. Zero at the Bone is a title taken from a poem by Emily Dickinson uh, when she is talking about a, a, a her poem about seeing a snake in the grass. And Dickinson says that uh, seeing the snake made her blood uh, run zero at the bone, the frightened. You know, so the, and, of course, the illusion is uh, that the snake was none other than Austin Hall. And, and, and the book is available on Kindle as well. Thank you again for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, keep me updated when it's on, and I'll uh, look for uh, listening for it. I certainly will. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.